Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I am so excited to announce that I've teamed up with Mark Nathan to bring you The Consumer VC Summit. It's going to be from October 13th through 15th, and will be three days of discussions, talks, from some of the top investors in CPG. So some of the industries we're going to be focusing on are food and bev, beauty and personal care, femtech, cannabis. There's going to be also lots of networking opportunities. And if you're a founder, we're going to have one-on-one mentoring sessions with investors. To get your tickets, head over to summit.theconsumervc.com. That'll also be located in the show notes. We cannot wait, and we're excited to see you there. Our guest today is Nate Cooper, partner at Barrel Ventures. Barrel is a seed stage fund based in the heart of the Midwest. Some of their investments include House, Olipop, and Clove. Previously, Nate founded 3L Hospitality Group and Wise Apple. This was an awesome conversation about his time starting a business, the Midwest, and how he thinks about food and beverage. Without further ado, here's Nate. Nate, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. So I know you come from a food and bev and supply chain family. Was food and bev always an attraction for you when you were younger and thinking about a career or what was your initial attraction to the space? You know, I think it it runs kind of in the blood, obviously. Uh, having grown up in the industry, went to college, didn't really know what I wanted to do and kind of backed my way into finance. And but in the back of my head, you know, when I was sort of thinking in college, what's my sort of dream job? It was to join an early stage, you know, food and beverage restaurant company. And I think that just comes from the industry that I grew up in and the atmosphere that was around me growing up. And it kind of ended up happening. So despite many times trying to, to not go back to it, it's an industry that, you know, is in my blood and that I know. And I kind of just acted as a magnet and happy to happy to be in it again. That makes a lot of sense. It reminds me a little bit when I talked to uh, Nick Mandel over at uh, Amberstone and he kind of had the same thoughts where he was like, the last thing I wanted to do was go into like the restaurant industry, but they pulled me back in, so to speak. You know, it's like what Buffett says about invest in what you know, you know, and I think in our world, it's much different, but you know, you do what you know and you do what you understand. And when it comes second nature, you kind of just have to do it. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So I know that you've also been an operator. You've started businesses, 3L, Wise Apple. What were some of the learnings as an operator that really impacted you as an investor? I remember growing up and playing on sports teams and my parents and coaches always used to say that who you are is what you do when nobody's looking and your reputation carries beyond, you know, when you're wearing and, you know, with Wise Apple at L3, you know, specifically with Wise Apple, you know, when I was an entrepreneur, we probably spoke to, let's call it a thousand investors, right? And now that I'm on the other side of the table, we spoke to a thousand investors, 900 of them plus turned us down. And a lot of entrepreneurs go through that experience and say, you know, F you, I'm never going to talk to you again. I kind of took the opposite approach where I said, you know, I'm going to build relationships with these people, right? And even though they said, we're not interested. They called our baby ugly, right? I tried to keep relationships with those people. And now that I'm on the other side of the table, it's benefited me tremendously. And some of these people that ended up not investing in our company have become my closest friends and, you know, I've done deals with them and worked with them. And so the lesson of never burn a bridge, I think is something that strikes home frequently. No, that makes sense. I mean, it reminds me of my conversation when I had a 
Eamon Carrion, who's the managing director of uh, Techstars London, he was saying how when he didn't believe in a company at the, earlier in his investing career, because there's obviously so many companies and so many founders that you're talking to, it's very, very easy to not respond to an email or miss an email. And then there's kind of leave founders in limbo, so to speak. But he said that that can also travel with your reputation too. So I think that having that transparency and being very, very clear if something's a pass, I think that's incredibly valuable to founders just to know what your actual position is. Absolutely. You know, everyone jokes about how small the world is. And I think it it gets smaller and smaller every single day. You know, especially nowadays where people are always connected and and talking through email and text, things can be misconstrued sometimes, right? Where you respond to an email really shortly or something gets lost in the hustle and bustle of things. And so I always try to get back to people quickly. And if it's a no, give them a reason or be very specific with people. You know, I didn't like when people kind of beat around the bush with me as an entrepreneur. So, you know, I want to be as honest and transparent on the other table as I would expect people to be to me. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So what prompted the creation of Barrel Ventures? Just talk me through that. Yeah. So, you know, when we shut down Wise Apple, which was a humbling and painful experience, we went through, we had a term sheet signed with a large strategic. I won't say who they were. Went through months and months of diligence and legal back and forth. And term sheet ended up being pulled from us about six hours before funding. And the legal bill was left with us, which essentially bankrupted us. So, you know, because of my history and the family history, we've always seen a lot of deal flow sort of in the consumer food and beverage supply chain world. And when I was running business, didn't really have any time to look at it. And now that I was sort of figuring out what my next step was going to be, finally had a chance to sort of take a pause and spend some time on some of the stuff. And so was fortunate to make, you know, early investments in companies like Olipop and Daily Gem. A light bulb sort of went off of, look, if we're going to do this, you know, I was talking to friends in the venture world about joining their fund and sort of leading consumer investing. It sort of came to, you know, ahead with my father as my partner. And we sort of came to the conclusion of, look, we're going to do this. We've got the network, the deal flow and the expertise sort of in these verticals that we know. It makes more sense for us to do this on our own than to go out and pay someone to do it for us. So we decided to launch Barrel. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that makes a lot of sense. You already had, you know, a lot of the connections. You obviously, multi-generation, knew the industry extremely well. So it makes sense for you and your dad to do something on your own and, and set up a family office rather than go and help other funds. How are you thinking about the seed stage landscape during these times, especially during COVID? I think the bar has definitely been higher. Deal flow has been just as robust as it was before. You know, it's providing companies more of a reason to really hone down and nail down costs and focus on profitability maybe earlier or, or close to profitability and spend less on useless things. I think what it's done has sort of made us you know, A, raise the bar, as I said, but get to that true conviction and deeper conviction more seriously because for us to make an investment when the bar is higher, we have to really believe in the team and the product. And without meeting those founders, I have to really fall in love with what that team is building and the opportunity and the market size because it's so much harder now meeting people over Zoom and things like that, not getting to see them face to face, right? That true conviction really has to be no questions whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting about meeting founders over Zoom and trying to establish conviction, of course, within founders over Zoom. Because of course, at the seed level and at the early stages, you don't really have a ton of traction metrics. So a lot of what you're basing your investment on um, is a founder. Nick, when I had him on, he was saying how actually Zoom in some ways has been an advantage for him because he's seen how founders have responded when like their kids come in or when like a cat like walks over the computer and see under these kind of moments of chaos, so to speak, how they're actually responding. And so that's actually painted him like a much better picture in some ways than meeting him 
person. A hundred percent, you know, and some of our best entrepreneurs in our portfolio are people who have you know, really well-balanced lives, right? They have kids, they are married, even if they are or not, you know, they have hobbies that they spend a lot of time on outside of work and they have really well-balanced lives. And this week I've had my, we have a six-week-old daughter. I've had her on Zoom calls, right? Where I'm just holding her and, you know, just seeing how people react to that. You know, you like to see that there's this human element in a lot of the founders, right? And when things, you throw them a curveball, which I'm not doing intentionally, you like to see like, are these people robots or do they have humans, right? Right. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Walk us through a little bit of your diligence process as well. That'd be great. Right. So it sort of depends on what the business is. I'll talk to you about sort of like a a consumer product, right? So first and foremost, you have to get that gut feeling with the brand because, you know, if you're selling something in a grocery store or online and the brand isn't great, customers aren't going to pay attention to it. They're not going to buy it. It's not going to catch their eye. On top of the brand, the product needs to be fantastic, right? Because it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing, right? If the brand's not great, people are going to try it. You know, the product's not great. It doesn't matter how great the brand is. So the product has to be just as good, if not better than the brand. And I sort of, you know, go back to Olipop with this. When I first tried Olipop almost two years ago, which is hard to believe, the product I thought was fantastic, right? It was the first thing that really, I don't drink soda, I don't drink Coke very rarely. And it was the first drink that I'd had that replaced that Diet Coke craving that a lot of people have. And, but I felt good about drinking it because it was good for you, right? It's got nine grams of fiber, three grams of sugar, 30 calories versus 50 grams of sugar, however many regular soda has. And the brand was, you know, head over heels phenomenal, right? So you check those two boxes and then you look at the team and go back to, you know, do they have the human element? Are they well-rounded individuals? Are they experienced entrepreneurs? If you Yes. What was their past experience? I learned so much from a failure and sort of getting those battle scars. And I think having people who have gone through that experience, it's almost more valuable than having had a winner before, right? Because you learn what not to do. And then you sort of look at the broader team and and the market size, right? If they check all those boxes and the market is sort of ripe for disruption, then I think you're sort of well on your way to making that investment. Are you seeing on the CPG side as well fluctuations in valuations during these times? Because you have the pop of the DTC channel, but then you also have, you know, if you're uh, very exposed in retail, then an omnichannel strategy might be a lot tougher to pull off right now. Have you seen any, any like fluctuations there or not so much? Not so much. You know, I think it's kind of been relatively steady. You know, I think that people need to understand CPG valuations aren't tech valuations. And, you know, the huge winners that exist in the CPG world, right? The RX bar that got 6X, you know, Simple Mills, you know, Peter and Caitlin have created wonderful companies, but not every company is going to sell for 6X, you know, forward revenue, right? So entrepreneurs need to be realistic. And, you know, being realistic isn't necessarily going to hurt you, right? If you're raising money at an early stage and you raise a too high valuation, you're, you're almost setting yourself up for failure because if you don't reach that obscene valuation, the next time you need to go out and raise money, the entrepreneur is screwed, right? They have to raise a down round and you know, recap the company and who knows if they're still going to be around. Right. Absolutely. Want to know why you're based in Chicago, some of the advantages of being based in Chicago. You know, when I had on Will McClellan, for example, he said that if you want to build a CBG company, come to New York. Um, and then when I had on Kiva, he said, well, you can make the argument that actually Los Angeles is more of like the center of CBG rather than New York in terms of, I think, uh, food and beverage. But we'd love to just kind of hear about how you're thinking about the geographic, like the United States just as a region and landscape of where you're finding companies. Yeah, so I, I hear their sentiments and, and I know Kiva, well, you know, I would argue that Chicago is a wonderful place to build a new CBG company, right? You look at some of the biggest CBG successes over the past few years, our X-Bar and Civil Mills, both based in Chicago, some of the biggest CPG companies in the world, you know, Kraft 
at Mondelez based in Chicago. But I think we're based in Chicago because it's home. I've spent you know time in New York. I've spent time in LA and San Francisco and Chicago is home. Growing up in this area and having spent time you know all over the country, you know, Chicago, Chicagoans are, people have built companies that are based on real products, right? And not to say that software or finance, you know, isn't an incredible industry that makes money, but like people in Chicago have built things with their hands, right? And they've made enormous companies building real products that are tangible, that people can feel, see and touch. And that's kind of who I am as an entrepreneur. That being said, I think you can build a great consumer product company, whether it's software or a CPG product anywhere, right? You may want to launch it in a different space, launching a product in Erewhon, you know, if you're a, a better for you CPG product or Whole Foods, right, is certainly going to get the word out there. But I think if you're building a phenomenal product with a great brand and a great team, you can start the company from anywhere. That's a great point. And I think that you're definitely more on the lines of how Nick answered this question too, how he thought there's not really like a central hub, so to speak, there you can really build a company out of anywhere. What's some advice you might have for founders that are located in secondary or tertiary markets that are looking to fundraise? I think focus on building the best products and the best brand and the best team. And if you create all those things, like people will come to you, you know, it's like field the dreams, right? If you build it, people will come, if you build it, they will come. If you create a, an incredible product, you're going to have opportunities to raise money from, from who you want. Then again, you have to you know run the business responsibly and not, you know, spend money stupidly. But if you build a great product, you're going to have opportunities. People are going to find you and, and doing it in a secondary tertiary market almost benefits you because you can sort of do it under the radar. You know, I think about one of our portfolio companies that we invested in. I'm not going to say who, because he enjoys, he or she enjoys staying under the radar, but the company's doing incredibly. It's in a secondary market. They've filled a white space that no one filled before. And it is literally off to the races, sort of unlike anyone expected. And I think it benefits them that they are in the secondary market because they're under the radar and nobody's copied them yet. When you spoke before about brand, when I had on Kiva, he was saying how if he were to start a company today, the production, the contract manufacturing aspect, that part is the easy part. The brand, though, is really the valuable piece. And it seems like there's so many, like a number of these DNVB type businesses that really seem very authentic, but only so many can exist and get above the white noise. I'd love to just break down how are you thinking about brand when you look at new opportunities? I think it's almost like how companies can create this cult following? How do they connect with their consumers on a deeper level? What problem are they solving for their consumers? You go back to the, the age old venture saying, is it a morphine problem or is it you know a vitamin problem, right? And if you're solving a morphine problem, there's more of an opportunity for you to really deeply connect with your consumers on such a level that allows these people to become unpaid evangelists of your brand. And you look at some of our companies like Olipop, millions of consumers want to stop drinking soda right across the world. And people can't because there's nothing that sort of replaces that taste or that craving. And then Olipop comes along and people, like you look at their Instagram following and people are begging them to go into stores all across the country where they currently aren't. But the company's less than two years old, so it's still young and they still have a long way to go, but they're sort of on their way to creating something really special. And you look at Clove, Joe solved a problem for his wife, who's a nurse who hated her shoes. And this is a problem that nurses and doctors and vets and PAs and medical professionals all over the country face, that there was nothing that was specifically for them. They used shoes that were created sort of, this is the next best option. And when you fill that white space with something that is built for them, the results by both the enthusiasm that customers have for your product and you know how much they're going to pay for it and how often they're going to buy it will blow you away. 
That's a really great point. It's obviously identifying the opportunity and seeing the real pain point and also seeing the engagement of consumers of how much they love the product and how much also they share the product. I'd imagine also like the organic growth from there as well would add to that. What are some consumer trends that right now you're most focused on? I think a couple, you know, on the consumer side are personalization. What can be personalized in a cost-efficient way that consumers will purchase? The same way empowering consumers. And I think on the supply chain side, operational insight into companies, you know, our 10,000 foot view of what we're doing is things people buy and how they buy them. You know, there are companies providing operational insight to help these omni-channel brands evaluate their KPIs better or reach customers better, whether it's through returns or customer experience, you know, things that are sort of solving those issues. Problems that I experienced as an entrepreneur in this omni-channel space, right? How are you thinking about portfolio construction just in these two areas on the brand side and also on the supply chain, more like commerce infrastructure side? Yeah, you know, I think the broader view is we're only looking to invest in things that A, we understand and B, we can add value to. And at the end of the day, probably 75% of that is going to be in the consumer food and beverage supply chain world. You know, we're focused on the pre-seed to series A companies. Two of our best investments so far, knock on wood, were made pre-revenue. It's a different world today, right, than it was two years ago or a year and a half ago. It's scarier now. So the bar is definitely higher for a pre-revenue company. But look, we look to invest and write a check into a company early on. And if they're doing great, we, we love nothing more than to follow on. Love it. So what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? You know, I listened to your podcast with Nick and sort of resonated with me with what he said about how they build their portfolio, you know, where they don't necessarily want to invest in all binary outcomes, right? Where one 30 to 100x returns the 29 companies that fail. I agree with that. I also agree that from a venture perspective, companies shouldn't have to be multi-billion or billion dollar companies to be considered a winner. You know, if you create a hundred million dollar company or even a $50 million company, that's an incredible success, right? And if you can create a company like that on your own and be, you know, for your investors and have it be a big returner for everyone, props to you for doing that. To do that successfully and to make venture change, you can't keep raising at 10 million pre-launch, right? I was talking to a company the other day that was a few months into launch and they were raising at a $50 million cap. And I, you know, my response to the, the entrepreneur was, look, I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm saying this, you know, because I've been in your shoes. Not that I know everything, but you're not doing yourself a favor by raising at the high valuation, right? It may look great and it may say, oh, I own 20% of this company. Now I have $10 million in paper, but by all means, the company is not worth that. To my point earlier, if you don't reach that valuation in your next round, you're setting yourself up for failure because to do that, when you're raising at that high valuation early on, to get the investors the return that they want, right? Most venture investors, they are going to invest in something saying, can I make 10X on this company? And if I can't, I'm not going to invest in it. And at that point, you know, you have to exit a company for $500 million. The only CPG company that I can think of off the top of my head that's, you know, an early stage company that's exited for that in the past few years is our XFAR, right? I'm sure there are others, but when there's so few exits at that stage, at that valuation, something's wrong. How do you think then about over fundraising? And is that a conversation that you might have with founders at the early stages? Yeah, look, not all of these companies need to raise venture money. There are companies that if you create a $20 million lifestyle business that throws off, you know, two to $4 million a year in cash flow, that's a phenomenal business. And it's a lifestyle that I, I would want to live, right? It's not a lifestyle business. That's an incredible business. You know, I was having this conversation the other day. There's going to be sort of a, a dearth of strategic buyers, 
right? In some spaces, in software and CPG, I think there's always going to be strategic exits, but in some of these spaces, the crazy multiples that strategics are paying just aren't going to last forever. And we go through cycles and waves and they may come back. But when you look at your business and how you're starting out in funding, venture might not be the right answer for everyone. And, and that's not bad. That means that, hey, you can build a phenomenally successful business in a different way where you may not have to give up equity to other people. It might take longer, but the good things take a while to become good. Okay. So if a company has fundraised, maybe they've raised like a seed round or a series A or a couple rounds, how should they think about like profitability versus growth? You've raised some venture money. Probably you're not going to be a unicorn if you're in the food and bev space. There's a lot of exits usually happen between, I'd imagine like the hundred million to 300 million type faces, but how should companies when they're at that stage or how do you think about it as well? Growth versus profitability? Well, you want sort of sustainable growth. And I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation with entrepreneurs of like, hey, we have an opportunity to launch in a thousand grocery stores next month, you know, and go from 200 to a thousand stores. And that might be the right decision. And it might not because if you launch in a thousand stores and you have a small team, how are you going to support that launch going from 100 to a thousand stores? It sounds sexy and like attractive and really hard to turn down, but the right decision may be taking that off in chunks, right? Instead of launching nationwide at Whole Foods, do region by region. So you can actually support that and guarantee success, right? Because top line may look great, but if your velocities aren't consistently improving and sort of align with the benchmarks that whatever grocery store you're in has identified, then you're screwed and you only get one shot to hit a home run with these places, right? Because if you launch and you're unsuccessful and you come back a year later and say, hey, we want to launch again. We've had success in all these stores. That company doesn't care. They're going to say, hey, you were unsuccessful with us. Why would we give you another chance, right? So smart, sustainable growth is the right way to go. That makes sense. That makes sense. What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Our most recent investment is a company called Partake Brewing. It is a non-alcoholic beer company that Ted Fleming started in Canada. The company has been doing phenomenally the past few years. I've known Ted probably a year and a half at this point. Ted is just one of those entrepreneurs that goes heads down and, and builds a company. And, you know, he wasn't seeking out fundraising, but people came to him. And he's built this company mostly in Canada. If I gave you this and said, this is beer, you would have no clue that it was non-alcoholic. It is by far and away the best non-alcoholic beer I've tried. And there are a bunch of new ones coming. They're doing just as good as some of the big US brands. And there's a huge white space for them, both in Canada and in the United States. And the coolest thing about it is they have the lowest calorie and carb count in the non-alcoholic space. So it's, I'm not keto, but it is essentially keto friendly. So I would go online and buy, buy the spirit, not because I'm an investor, but because it is incredible. That's great. That's awesome. I will certainly have to check it out. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I'll give two books. Um, one was a book called Now Discover Your Strengths, which I read probably 10 years ago. You know, I'm one of those people who, when someone asked me like, what are you good at? I could never really answer. I know I'm not bad at everything, but like, I could never really say like, what my personal strengths are, right? And that was finally the book where I like could put a word to like what I was good at and also figured out how I could describe to people how I work and what kind of people I work best with and that sort of stuff. And it was eye-opening for me both to read that and sort of apply that to my work and, and work life and also people I work with and see what their strengths were and, and how we mesh and things like that. And it's something that I've sort of, we've done moving forward, just seeing how I interact with people and how we as a company, I think it's something that I, I would recommend all companies do because seeing what your strengths are as an individual and what co-founder strengths are and how you mesh and what one person might be good at, right? You can get frustrated at your co-founder for thinking that he or she isn't doing something carefully 
carefully and maybe it's just a strength, not a strength of theirs, right? And that book really told me that instead of focusing on your weaknesses, right? People have weaknesses. They're probably always going to be weaknesses, right? But if you focus on your strengths and make those like true strengths, you can become sort of a superhuman in those abilities. I love that. I think that's really important. I mean, especially, honestly, I feel like that's probably such a great book for founders where you're a generalist. And so you're still kind of figuring out what your strengths are that, as you said, was your position. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. And the other book that I read recently that was awesome and inspiring, it was actually a historical fiction book. It's called The Last Days of Night. And it was about current war between Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, and George Westinghouse. And it was one of those books that I started reading and couldn't put down. And my wife's grandfather actually recommended it to me. And I think I finished it in like a day and a half. I think they're making it into a movie, which I can't wait to watch. But it was, you know, one of those books that just really inspired me about dreaming big, right? And these people dreamed that they could change the world and they ended up doing that. And it was phenomenal. That's awesome. Yeah, I've actually tried to get the author's brother on their show. He's a venture capitalist. Anyway, that's great, though. Excited to add to our uh, book list. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Something that resonated me with me as a entrepreneur is that it only takes one yes. Whether you're raising money or trying to get a sale or trying to get a product into the hands of you know consumers, a thousand people could say no, but that one yes could change your life. And this is a world where there's going to be a lot of ups and downs, right? You have to be patient. You're going to get punched and, and set back, but just keep in mind that it only takes one yes. You know, One person doesn't really believe in you and your product to change the trajectory of your business or life. I love that. I love that. It only takes one yes. It's a great piece of advice. And of course, that the yes could take a while. As you said, when you were an entrepreneur, you probably spoke to a thousand investors. So yeah, but anyway, Nate, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to listen. And there you have it. Such a pleasure chatting with Nate. Nate, thanks so much for coming on the show. If you want to keep tabs on Nate, follow him on Twitter at N-R-C-O-O-P-E. This will also be in the show notes. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe. 